should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. It's Thursday, my favorite day of the week, because we're here at the Commonwealth Club, a live taping with my co-host, John Zipper. John, it's so good to see you. Well, thanks. It's always great to see you, see our guests. Yeah. Um, and we should note that as of March 1st, our next Thursday show here, we will be at noon. So people in the Bay Area who want to come out, enjoy a free and interesting discussion, welcome to join us at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. The, the point of the program is to include LGBTQI thought leaders, and we have conversations around social justice with an intersectional approach. Um, it is the last week in which we are doing our special Black History Month program, and although uh, many you know media outlets will focus on actual history and talk about individuals um, as far as American history is concerned, I think here in the program we really wanted to talk to LGBTQI leaders in the African-American community who are actually making history every day of their life and who are still around with us. And so the program has been co-curated by kinfolks of our Spectrum Queer Media, and um, that's been a really wonderful opportunity. Uh, this this week, or today, right now, we have Janetta Johnson, who's the executive director of TGIJP, which stands for Transgender Gender Variant Intersex Justice Project. And uh, I've been wanting to talk to Janetta for a really long time, and, and you'll understand why. So, Janetta, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Thank you. So here's Thank why I, I, I wanted, you know, to have you. And, and it's so great to, to, that you are a part of the last week of the Black History Month. You've been doing a lot of work around, you know, centered around the most marginalized of our community. And we're talking about black transgender women or transgender women of color. I want to start with you and, and a little bit about you. You have openly talked about your own experiences as a black trans woman who's been incarcerated or who's had experiences in the broken, you know, justice system, the jail system. Um, let's let's talk about you. Let's talk about why that experience in your personal life inspired you to make some changes to this country, really. Um well uh I have to mention Miss Major, who is my trans mom. I, when I moved to San Francisco, all I knew was there was a black trans woman by the name of Miss Major that was going to support me in transitioning into um, San Francisco. And um, I came to San Francisco very broken with a lot of heartache and pain. And um, coming from Tampa, Florida, and it's just like um, having the opportunity to be mentored by Miss Major and supported by Miss Major, and um, 
And um, just having that support to change and having that leadership and having someone to um, be mentored by. Um, and I realized that even living in Florida, it was very difficult for me as a black trans woman. And it was um, like a few weeks ago when we had an all-black trans women convening that one, one of the ladies that I um, um, that lived in Florida during that time, even though she lives in Atlanta, and she told me that, she's like, oh, you don't know? You've been doing this work way before you came to San Francisco. It's just like, now that you're here, it's just like, it has really advanced, and you've grown a lot, and you've learned a lot, but I just have the experience of seeing the disenfranchisement of black trans women, trans women of color, being a black trans woman, knowing the struggle, um, knowing how we're treated in society, and um, specifically with all the violence that's happening, you know there's uh, uh, some systemic stuff in the system that's been broken, um, even even for people to perpetuate the violent behavior that happens to um, black trans women, it just leaves me concerned around historical trauma and the historical trauma that black people face and um, and not to make any um, excuses. It's just that um, um, the violence that's happening to black trans women, you could see how um, that could be, you know, part of the lineage of the trauma that, you know, black people face, black trans women face, black people experienced in the womb. Um, so I um, do this work because I feel like it's important to really um, support the most marginalized and disenfranchised population. And, you know, there's elevations of class and privilege and power and stuff like that. And um, I just, I, I know firsthand because I've always tried to understand where all the trauma come from, where does this stuff come from that prevents black trans women um, evolving in the way that like, you know, sometimes you see the rest of the world evolving and it's just like you're left behind in some ways that doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. You you mentioned, of course, the levels of privilege and things. That, and, and when we're looking at, you know, the the enha- increased levels of violence and, and murders of, of trans black women um, in particular, it's not just, I think, the the needs to be addressed of the fact that this stuff is happening, but then the support that is out there is is smaller than middle-aged white guy getting attacked you know something like that so when you're what's how how do you work to overcome that or to provide the support that that folks need I feel like we're really, really working towards developing that within our own communities. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm encouraging people to invest in black trans women, trans women of color, formerly incarcerated people. But I feel like in some ways we're doing the best that we can to invest in ourselves. I mean, I feel like there was a lot of output, like um, educating allies and, you know, looking for allies. And it's just like there's been a huge shift. Um, 
not um, nationally, um, a lot of the trans women that I've been working with over um, the United States, it's just like we're like, okay, we're not going to spend all our time educating people and, you know, building up allies. We're going to spend our time and energy, like, really um, investing in ourselves and taking care of ourselves and um, doing the best that we can to um, get our needs met. Mm-hmm. I, I totally hear that and feel that you know, more trans women of color are fighting back and speaking up and speaking out against the injustices that they face, especially calling out the systemic or institutionalized uh, racism, transphobia. Uh, you know, the task force and many other actually uh, LGBT organizations like Transgender Law Center have put out statistics, like real statistics that talk about uh, transgender women of color having a higher probability of, you know, police brutality or being targeted, uh, being uh, cited or fined for some of the smallest or petty, you know, crimes. And I put crimes in air air quotes because, you know, there's also that's questionable, right, in which uh, what are you being targeted for? So I wanted to hear, you know, you talk about, how dangerous it is and and how the process from being targeted from being profiled to actually being fined going through the criminal justice system that's broken and while <coughs> you know incarcerated to even being released that the punishment or the trauma continues on and on and on and it's cyclical and it becomes very very hard uh, for trans women of color to jump right back into life if, as if nothing ever happened. And, um, you know, after doing a lot of work in the community in 2008, 2009, when the economy changed, and, you know, I've seen white America losing homes, jobs, whole bank accounts, and life savings, and... Um, um, and I felt like if white America was losing, I knew I was going to lose and I had to survive. So as a result, I spent um, time in prison for selling drugs. Um, and me going through that system and being in jail uh, for 13 months and taking the opportunity to meet with every trans woman that were in jail. And um, there was, I must say, Throughout the 13 months, I must have engaged, uh, like, 16 trans women, black trans women. Um, there was one Latino and one API um, trans woman that I engaged in that process. And just, like, like really making it my business and in my mind, it's just, like, I'm going to focus on reentry. I'm going to focus on recidivism. I'm going to figure out how did I get here after I worked so hard not to be in a situation like this. How does my community continue to? So, you know, I took the time out to really, like, listen and talk and have conversations and understand, you know, the challenges that we face and the barriers that we face that we already know. But, you know, having the opportunity in such a raw moment to hear these things be verbalized and sort of kind of like put the pieces together and figuring out like um, how screwed up the system was, how black trans women were treated, you know, even to the extent of like 
um, officers being intentional about referring to trans women as Mr. and Sir and he and like um, writing the judge and saying, you know, this is a pro- this is very problematic. It's just like usually when trans women are being referenced like that, it's an attack. I mean, on the streets, if I was walking down the street, I would feel like somebody's like getting ready to attack me because that's usually what follows when people misgender you and just um. Looking at details in the system and how, you know, guards perpetuate inmates, other inmates against trans people. It's just like um, trans people putting in compromising situation where they know they're going to be taken advantage of sexually, you know, when in the shoe, putting you in the um, cell with, you know, with someone that you know is going to take advantage of you. And I feel like, you know, the system sets all that up to uh, further re-traumatize trans people and, um and um, going through the reentry process and having a case management background and having a substance abuse counselor background and being a prevention specialist uh, throughout the work that I've done um, post-prison. And it's just like here I am navigating this system or trying to navigate this system. And I'm in the halfway house at 111 Taylor and I – all these guys in here are like they're saying oh we're getting these resources all these wonderful resources like they're right there I mean they just got me housed they just got me this they just got me that and me going there as a black trans woman and saying hey I'm here you know like I need the services and being denied access to services and I thought oh my god I have experience and background in you know navigating the system um you know, having the experience of working as a case manager and doing the work that I've done in the community. And I could only imagine what it would be like to, like, not have the knowledge and the background and how discouraging and how despairing it could be because you're sitting here, you're having conversations with um, people that have the same criminal background as you, but they have cis privilege, and it's like, you keep going to these things, and they keep telling you there's no access, we're out, it's over, like, and then you go back to the halfway house, and you hear somebody come back the next day and be like, hey, I just walked in, got my housing, you know, and it just, it's sort of kind of like, it's, to me, it's kind of like evidence of being black and being trans and being denied access based on that. And it's like, I always had to go talk to the person up higher, the person up higher, the person up higher. (laughs) And finally, they just like, take it, go, you know, like, and it's just like, it's like having to fight that fight, you know, um, every day for the most part, you know, I, I, uh, I see this in my mind, I'm visualizing it and I'm laughing at how ridiculous and I know this, you know, as a member of the LGBTQ community, as well as being a person of color, like how much you have to prove, like just how much you, you really want to uh, be a, a good person or you need help and you're asking for help. John, or I, I, your, your turn. Um, speaking of post uh, incarceration things, you've spoken about the importance of mental health care. Um, Tell, tell us more about that. What's needed? Um, what are there? 
is anyone actually providing it or is that part of what you have to fight in order to actually get? Um, that's another system that's very difficult to navigate. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, particularly in my work, and this part is so, so, so frustrating, when people are released from prison and all they have is a three-day supply of medication and it's like they go and try to access a mental health appointment and it's like it's like 35 or 45 days and it's like those are the biggest challenges and that's where people fall in the gaps and that's the gap that we at TGIJP are trying to close Mm -hmm. you know and um, we're currently working on some housing and we're currently working on you know um, job training program um, restaurant management training program and it's like we want to be able to provide trans people coming out of jails and prison um immediate access to medical mental health care um and that's some of the work that we have been doing right now with St. James Infirmary um which is an amazing clinic that we live with um so it's like that's some of the work that we're doing now but and the gap is still open but we're slowly trying to work to close it and um I want to, speaking of the work that you do at TGIJP, which, gosh, you know, I, I mean, I'm just so, um, I feel such a deep respect for you and everybody involved in the organization. You're really, really fighting for the most marginalized of our community, but providing resources that seem impossible, especially in a city like San Francisco. So TGIJP recently has been a part of some campaigns to free you know, trans women who uh, have been incarcerated. Um, I want to ask you, you know, when you when you put a campaign out there and uh, you don't, you, you know, it's like it's, the city of San Francisco has changed, social media has changed people. I mean, how do you get people to really get behind the message and also, re, you know, fight the urge to respond back in a way where it's hurtful if somebody's going to say, well, what did this person do? You know, like, why, why are they in jail? And, they, and then they have that reaction before they say, yes, you're right. We should free, you know, this person who went, uh, who was arrested for blank. Um, I think the large part of it is, is you just think about the disenfranchisement that people have experienced throughout their lifetime. I always go back to the historical trauma. I always go back to the, um, um, to having an understanding that a lot of especially when it comes to black trans women. And I'm not saying they haven't been parented, but it's just like usually the parenting is cut off at the age of 16, 17, 15, when they come out as a transgender person, usually uh, because of the lack of respect or whatever needs not being met, um, trans women, if they're not kicked out, they leave because they're looking for a community that affirms them. And it's just like, it's like um, a, um, a lot of transparent trans folks has not been parented completely other than the fact that you know um within our community we support each other but it's just like you got to think of different levels of times and era um 
when I came out as a young trans person, my trans mother was like six years older than me. And the only resources that she had was sex work. And that's what she shared with me, you know. Um, she shared with me how she survived, you know. So um, it's just a matter of like... Um, um, just having that understanding and compassion yeah. and, and, and looking to, like, it, it's, I'm not saying that it's not that serious, but it, it's not that serious. And sometimes if people look into the details of a case, you know, because you hear, you know, black trans woman did this, but if you look at, look in the details in the case, you will find so many inconsistencies. You will find that it's not that serious. I mean, well, and I'm asking this question because I think that, you know, we, we are failing as a, as a, even if we were to focus on this idea of gender coming together, right? The women's movement, the women's or feminist movement, which in in large part, my opinion at least, has left out you know transgender women, and we're lacking the compassion. I think that that's a missed opportunity if we're not taking the time to really understand the lived experience. Excuse me, the lived experiences of our transgender sisters, because if we're talking about like the Me Too movement, if we're talking about fighting back, we're talking about speaking up and speaking out. Trans women have been doing this, but when a black trans woman is incarcerated for fighting back. Why do we as society, as a big, large gender group, question, you know, black trans women's uh, right to, to, to fight back? You know what I mean? So I, I just uh, really appreciate the campaigns that TGIJP has been putting out. It's so courageous and really uh, asking for the compassion in general. I think that that's what the organization is doing. Yeah, and just really looking at the disadvantages that different groups experience, you know. Um, yeah, well, I, I mean, I really just wanted to point that out because by and large people who are tuning in or listening to Progressive Voices or who are coming to Commonwealth Club, I mean, I think that um, we, the other, <laughs> outside of uh, identifying as transgender, need to do a better job of understanding, supporting, and educating ourselves. Well, you've told a great story about – not a great story. It's actually a disturbing story, but I thought it was an important story about uh, you were in another city, I believe, and this man and this woman were near you on the sidewalk, and the woman was harassing you. And then her boyfriend uh, presumably was basically like, oh, leave her alone, and and she was getting upset basically that he wasn't you know, going to – beat you up or whatever i mean it, it was it was an to me it sounded like a very odd situation but have you seen that happen elsewhere as well i mean that, that kind of uh people egging each other on to cause someone else harm like that um that's a black trans woman experience that's a black trans woman experience i mean that is something that we faced. I mean, me coming out of, as a black trans woman in 1980, it's just like that was that was normal for um, um, people altogether, just like egging people on to attack black trans women. Um, and that was when I was in Atlanta. I was coming down the elevator, and the uh, the woman was very insistent on like harassing me, like laughing at me, making jokes about me and, you know, saying names. And this guy was like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Um, 
this person is not bothering anybody. Why are you harassing them? I don't understand that. And he was just basically like, I don't know how you're trying to get me to respond, but I'm not going to respond because this person isn't doing anything. And, um, and that is sort of kind of like a one of a kind experience. But I also have been thinking about at some point in time, we have to show, um, cis folks how to, um, be of support and negotiating black trans women's safety, trans people's safety. And I feel like um like I don't want to invest a lot um in um in um like this, but um I think that um we have to like give cis folks language and we need to have conversation with cis folks around what do you say when you're in the beauty salon or you're in the pool hall or you know when you're in the gym or whatever and you see someone harassing a trans person it's just like you know especially in the movement um the movement of black lives, just the, the movement of where we are right now. Because, um, you know, you say you're my brother, you say we're a queer family, you say we're this. It's just like, you, you need to share with them, hey, don't harass this person. You know, that's my brother, that's my sister. Leave them alone. Like, what you don't even know, you know, sort of kind of have opportunity to educate people that, like, you don't know me, you know, you don't know what I do. I mean, uh, cis folks, it's just like, you don't know how I show up for you. And I show up for you. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, I show up for you. I put my body on the line for you. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, so, and that's thing, that's the type of thing that people don't have a clue. You know, that's the thing for black cis men is to say, trans, black trans women, we show up. If we see harm being caused to you, we show up. And we know that you're not going to show up for us, but we show up. I mean, that's even back in the 80s when I used to work the streets in Tampa, Florida. It's just like you're not going to attack a woman on the streets because black trans women will beat your ass. You know what I'm saying? You're not going to abuse women on the street. And even some of these women that we protected were women that, you know, perpetuated things against us. But it's like, no, we're all women and you know, it's just like you, you, sometimes you put yourself in other people's shoes. And I, I can remember feeling very strongly like I've been attacked as a trans person, particularly working the street where people like perceive me as a cis female and as a weaker sex that try to take advantage of me. And it's just like I have this thought in like, so what happens if I'm this 125 pound female? Are you gonna like just, you know, take advantage of a woman, and it's just like it was kind of heroic in a way to be like, "Motherfucker, I'm gonna beat your ass." <laughs> I love that. Thank you. So and I'm gonna beat your sharing. ass for her and her and her. I, I, I mean, you know, you mentioned the '80s. I was gonna go as far back as Stonewall. Let's not forget, right? Who who fought back? Uh, who started that, that initial spark that created the um, 
the retaliation, the resistance, the fighting back. And that was Marsha P. Johnson, an African-American black trans woman. Let's not forget because we always kind of tend to forget, especially with these new blockbuster movies that are coming out. Um, let's, you know, as we wind down this wonderful interview, which thank you so much, by the way, you are, have made me a better person just spending 15 minutes with you mm-hmm. and having this conversation and, and having a better understanding, right, of what the, the work that we need to do. Uh, you're involved in so much positivity. I mean, we were talking about the transgender cultural district here in San Francisco. I, I understand that, you know, the caster is doing so much to preserve gay culture with the, the, the rainbow lights and the rainbow uh, sidewalks and even the incredible plaques. But to fight for transgender space in this, you know, ever-changing San Francisco, that is amazing. Talk to us about how that all came together. Well, the election of Donald Trump really pushed me. I mean, the... Uh, the night of the election, I was getting this tattoo on my arm, Black Trans Lives Matter. And I had other plans, but it's just like when I realized that Trump was winning, I was just like, oh, my God, you better, like, stamp yourself because this is going to be a, a, a bumpy road. And um, um, we, we feel like we are a deserving group of people. And also we feel like whatever we get, we have to create. Um, I often tell um, black trans women, we are the ones that are waiting to save ourselves and um, just claiming space and being like, you know what? You've erased us for so many years. If you begin to develop on this street, you're going to take all this stuff away from us and, like we will not, our, our, we will be erased in the city and county of San Francisco. You know, all these various groups have their, um, their space and neighborhoods and, you know, place where they can like really get in touch with the cultural sense of safety. And I feel like don't deny us that opportunity. So that is one of the things that really, really made me and others fight and focus on making sure this happens. And we're looking for more to come. And um I have I have been um having conversations with my team and various people and um um myself, Arya and Honey Mahogany are through three black trans women that sat at the table and really like um like really like um did a lot of work around making sure that we have this legacy, we have this space and um we have this cultural district. And um I just I have to say that I am so invested in making sure that black trans women have um stake in this district and I'm saying it publicly because I you know I've said it within the communities and I've had conversations around that but I will do everything I can to make sure that black trans women have stake in that district. Black trans women fought to get that district and black trans women will have stake in that district. And that means housing and employment opportunities so that we don't have to always leave in order to sustain ourselves. And that's my work. That's my fight. That's my, you know, that's where we're headed. Thank you so much. I mean, for all that you do and for coming on this show you know and and talking to us and sharing your you you're just so amazing 
we normally open it up for questions um, to the group. And I just, you know, Ken is here, who we mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. Ken folks has co-curated the entire programming here at the Commonwealth Club during the Michelle Miao show, and has co-sponsored the program. So I'm also so grateful. So we'll we'll open it up. Does anybody have any questions uh, for Janetta? We'll have a mic brought for you. Oh, oh, you do? Oh, okay, great. Thank you. Can you hear me on this? Okay, excellent. Thank you so much for the work that you've done. I think that um, oftentimes people forget that you're coming from a place of personal experience. Could you say a little bit about how your personal experience of um, being in the system, the prison industrial complex, has informed you and helped you to be able to have conversations and almost like a sixth sense about how people need to be brought in to these conversations. And I kind of feel like it's been my entire life experience is always really, really paying attention to my community and listening and, you know, trying to hear their story and trying to make sense of all the, the just, I mean, it's just like how trans women try to take a step up and then end up like getting knocked back down. And, um, I've been in jail before, but it was this time that um, I was not on drugs. I, I, you know, I was complete abstinence from everything. So my mind was very clear and very conscious. And immediately when I walked in the door and I knew that I was going to do jail time, my mind immediately went to reentry recidivism. How do we get here? How do we you know, support ourselves in transitioning out, looking at things as simple as how many times a girl has been in and out of jail within that 13 months when I was in jail, just looking at all the details of our community and the disparities and the way that we were treated and the uh, misuse and, uh, and mismanagement of and the erasure that people, I mean, the criminal justice system basically tells you you are not a transgender person. You have lost that right to be transgender. And I'm like, how does that happen? Like, how do you, like, being a part of a system that completely tells you you are not who you are, you know, and living, leaving you feeling blank and empty, and then the way that they take your um, your medication that um, supports your transition, and it's just like you lose your mind. I can remember that I called Miss Major, um, who is my trans mom, and I'm like, I don't feel like a human being anymore. You know, it was just like, um, you know, I'm trying to feel human, but I don't feel human anymore, you know? And um, and I think that happens very much for trans people. I mean, and it happens at levels of... Uh, different levels of people inside the criminal justice system, but it's just like, and it's just like, I will always say, like, um, if black lives have no value, if black men have no value, black trans women has no value, you know, um, because I will go back to that levels of how people are treated in the world. And, um, um, 
just really paying to the criminal justice system and how everything is perpetuated against each other and looking at how the officers are and how people are strategically placed and forced to attack their own. And it's just, it's such a crazy system. I mean, it's just like, don't get me wrong. I hate the experience, but having this experience and really, really studying the system in a way that will help myself and help other trans people and other people move forward and understand the whole process of, you know, how people will try to mess up your mind till you feel like that's your only value and worth. And, um, I mean, I think of people living in the Tenderloin and SROs. People have lived 20 years in an SRO with a sink to piss in. And it's like, I mean, so being in a jail cell is the same as being in this six by eight room. So it's just like, I feel like, you know, there's so many systems that, that um, are set up so that when you get to the criminal justice system, it's like it's an okay system because you've been preconditioned to be out of there. I think about like um, last year when I moved from a a bedroom and a bathroom um, and moving into a one-bedroom apartment and feeling like I just got out of the shoe because I've been in this such confined space and, you know, like not having a place to sit down and have dinner at a table. And it's like I'm walking around my one-bedroom apartment and I'm like, oh, my God, why do I feel like I just got out of the shoe, Mm -hmm. you know? Thank you so much. I appreciate you. You are the right person for this work. And, you know, I adore Mama Major. Um, Any morning that you invoke Miss Major's name is going to be a good day. We already know. And that she said you are the right person to lead as she, you know, moved out of state and is continuing the work in a different way. I am just so blessed to to know you and to be in the same city with you. So thank you. Hmm. Thank you, hon. Really, we all are. Don't go away. When we come back, just a short, quick break. We have someone very funny, entertaining, an award-winning comedian, activist, and writer. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. 
So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Welcome back to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. We're here at the Commonwealth Club with my co-host, John Zipper. The second half of the show is exciting and probably will be fun and funny <laughs> because our guest is an award-winning comedian, uh, as well as a writer and an activist, and that is Samson McCormick. Uh, Samson, not only are you handsome, but your name just sounds so tasty. Like a, every well, time I, I say I Samson McCormick, I'm like, I'm hungry. <laughs> oh, well, well, I do that too. You know, I cook. We like, were just talking about oh, that. Yeah. Like I can throw down. Like when I tell you, I'm talking about make some food, make you want to slap somebody. And I know we're not violent here in the Bay Area. No. <laughs> At least, well, in Berkeley, I'm surprised. Like in Berkeley, they're having fights now. Yeah. And right. I mean, it's not serious. They're like throwing granola at people and stuff like that. But, it's, <laughs> you know, it's still like, I'm like, what? Well, but, I don't uh, know. When the alt-right comes. I you. Think, yeah. They kind of make you lose your religion a little bit, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's and there's some really crazy things going on, but um, of course I believe with humor, and mm-hmm. I'm a spiritual person. I believe in whatever sort of spirituality you hold on to, and community, mm-hmm. which is more important than anything, will be will be all right. You're from the Bay Area, right? I wish no? the Bay Area uh, <laughs> is. I, I lived here for a long time, okay. um, but I'm originally from DC. DC and I got. The, I, I was got going the, to ask you. DC. You're wearing a Washington Nationals hat. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, DC is. I represent DC all day, and I'm very, uh, very proud of the DC heritage, the experience that I had in DC. I wouldn't trade it for anything. But the Bay Area is my second home as well. I mean, you get a little bit of everything here. Mm-hmm. It's uh, very dynamic, very free thinking, uh, which is what I love. Is the ability for us as human beings to think <laughs> and think critically and think on our own. Um, I think it's very freeing, and we need that. I mean, it's. Uh, humanity is such a broad thing. It's it's too broad to just look at it and go, oh, well, let's think of it like this. You can't. <laughs> and uh, and I think that would be a horrible, boring way to live. So here we are. Tell us, I mean, I'm talking about all the things you do, including cooking, but the things you do professionally. Not just cooking. I can throw down. <laughs> Listen, there's a, it's Black History Month. Yep, that's right. Throw down. Mm-hmm. So you got to say that. You can throw down. You can throw down. <laughs> I was going to ask you kind of how you got into comedy and, and activism and, and whether they came together as, as a, uh, at the same time in your life or did you always want to be a comedian or, or what? I mean, how, how did this get started? Well, I wanted to be a singer. Really? Because, um, you know, as Michelle said, I am quite sexy. <laughs> <laughs> You, you, yes, you sound and look tasty. Thank you. Yeah. You know, but I did, I, and I grew up in the church, and I grew up in, and and I grew up in the eighties. So mm-hmm. that was a period of time where we still appreciated jazz, we still appreciated the blues, um, and of course, growing up in the church, it was all of those different things. So we sang a little bit differently. There were different sorts of instruments involved in the type of music that we made, um, and people could actually sing. <clears throat> don't talk about the music that we have now. Uh, some of it is all right. Um, but Justin I Bieber's good. <laughs> <clears throat> throw down. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
I guess. Um, you know, it, but I do. I miss the soul that came along with art. And, um, and so I would get on stage like at church and things like that. Yeah. And I would sing um, because at black church, if you get up there and can't sing, they will boo you. Off st- <laughs> <laughs> they'll boo you at the pulpit. And if you get booed at church, that's horrible. Um, little old lady just boo. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I never got booed, thank God. Yeah. But um, it was always the introduction. You have to testify to the goodness of the Lord. You have to testify to the things that you made it through during the week to get you to wherever it is that you got to. And um, I always made it seem like the devil was somebody I could see. And uh, and, and he was, uh, or that entity was something that I actually had to battle with during the week. And it tickled the church folks. And so people would, and I would sing my heart out. Yeah. I would leave my heart up there on that pulpit. And they would come up and they say, the song was cute, but what you said. <laughs> and I was like, but, and singing was like my thing. And they'd be like, but what you said, it was funny. And I didn't know I was funny. I didn't know. I mean, I knew I could make people laugh, but I didn't know it was a thing yeah. until I got a little bit older. And like, I remember I stole my mom's car one time. We won't talk about that. But um, <laughs> I didn't know it was still in the car. I wanted some McDonald's. And um, I took it at like 1030 at night. My mom was on painkillers, and I took it, and I drove it to McDonald's, but I crashed on the sidewalk uh, over in Maryland at Iverson Mall, so I got out of that. Like, we didn't get in any trouble because I was cracking cracking the cops up. So that was one. I know, wow. black man actually made some cops laugh, and it came out yeah, okay. Folks, wow. This, this is a cl- uh, let's listen to this. <laughs> that should <laughs> tell you humor is something, I mean, because, and, and I mean, we've always known about the, the tension that exists between the community and, and, and police. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't really thinking about it then. It's just like, oh my God. And it was, and I was genuinely scared and I didn't know I had messed up the officers. They escorted me back home. I didn't get in too much trouble. Um, but long story short, I never knew it was really something that I could do anything with. I was just doing it because I've been doing comedy since I was 15. And it wasn't until uh, Harvard, Harvard University was the first gig that I ever got. Mm-hmm. And um, I was like, I think I'm on to something. Yeah, if you're making smart people laugh. Well, yeah. And well, OK, we'll get to Harvard <laughs> in a minute. Uh, <laughs> but it was but long story short, I got into it because uh, I come from theater and any monologues that I've written or anything, they were always humorous. And I could take a lot of really uh, challenging things and I could make them really funny. And I didn't know. And I talked a lot in class. So my English teacher, my theater teacher, Ms. Carol Foster, who I hated, <laughs> told me I hated that lady. And I remember she used to have us to stand up and we would do monologues and I could make myself cry on command and all this type of stuff. And she would just be looking at me like, I guess. And I would cuss her out every class. And one class, I called her all these horrible names and everything. And I was crying. And she was just looking at me like with a smile on her face. That was the thing is I couldn't piss her off. And after I got finished cussing her out and I'm crying and snot and everything, she looked at me and said, that was the best monologue I've ever seen you give. And I was wow. like, what? Wow. And, uh, and it was her actually telling me, you know, go to a comedy club. If not, I will fail you. I wasn't thinking about comedy. And it was when I got up there. And uh, and did that for the first time. I was like, oh, this is cool. You weren't but terrified? I, oh, I was I was cocky. Okay. I was really cocky. I said, oh, well, you know, tomorrow I'm going to be famous <laughs> and this and that. And I really went in and, and that's the thing is a lot of people look at comedy and it, they come in with a cocky attitude. And I yeah. see a lot of new comics. They're really cocky. And I'm like, uh, no, this is work. And I actually it, I bombed really bad. 
And if I wouldn't have bombed that first time, I don't think I would have continued doing it. But only the first time. All the only rest the have been fr- massive successes. Mostly. Really? I've had a few. I could tell you some stories. We won't get into those. <laughs> um, but I mean, and, and ultimately, like, I mean, I've, I've been doing this for almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. And so I've been able to work with a lot of organizations. And I think it was, I've always been somewhat uh, political in, in my things. Um, I love art because that's what it should do. There's a, an expression, and it, it says that you should, uh, art, good art, should, I believe, let me see if I can get this right. It's uh, comfort the disturbed and disturb the comforted. Mm. And, uh, and it, it was always like that, so I started partnering with all these wonderful organizations in D.C., mm-hmm. uh, T.H.E., Transgender Health Empowerment, and Wanda Austin House, because I was homeless growing up. So, you know, um, they housed gay homeless youth. And then when I moved here, you know, I was working with, like, Spectrum Queer Media and, you know, different organizations that believe in infusing art and uh, commentary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, that really made me even more political and, and infused more activism into the work. So which came first, you finding out that you're actually funny and really good at being funny, or are you as a gay man? I think those two go hand in hand. I mean, the <laughs> crap we go through. Um, one it, minute, you know, I'm one damn funny gay man. <laughs> <laughs> a light switch. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was um, first it was funny, because mm-hmm. I tell people all the time that, and I was one of the first black gay male comics out. There are some that won't come out. We won't call names, but uh, leave that alone. Unless y'all, you give me, you start pouring vodka, I might tell a few names. Not trying to get in trouble, but um, for some, be like, get me, get me a drink, and uh, I blame it on the alcohol. But no, I was I was one of the first out black gay men in comedy, and um, and I didn't really think of it much then when I was doing it Mm -hmm. because if you look at comedy, comedy is not really it. There is an absence of diversity on a mainstream level. And because of the work that I was doing, and it wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't feel limited by any uh, boundaries or any, or the fact that, you know, it does lack diversity on a mainstream level. I was just doing what I do. And that was me and you had people like, uh, I mean, if you go back to even even other queer comics, starting with Tom Amiano and, you know, with Karen Ripley's and Margaret Gomez's and Karen Williams, you know, there were a small handful of queer comics who were doing this and we were so great at it that people were going, wait a minute, where is the rest of the diversity? Like we were creating that question. Yeah. So it was, I found out, I mean, I knew about the, the comedy thing, but I didn't know how much of a big deal it was to be a queer comedian. When I was in college, a friend of mine was a, and still is, a, now he's doing television as well, but he was a stand-up comic. And so he would have these gigs in other cities. So he would kind of grab one of his friends and we would have to like basically ride with him to keep him awake on the way back. Oh. But talk about lack of diversity yeah, yeah. I, I remember seeing you know the other people who were in the lineup that night and yeah a whole lot of white folks <laughs> yeah, it's yeah it's very it can be very white and very bland and it can be very boring because all they do is talk about their genitalia and what they do to women and and they do a lot of gay jokes and and it's horrible and and you look at things like netflix mm-hmm. you know everybody gets to crack a gay joke except an actual gay comedian Mm. Like, you cannot turn on Netflix right now and find a special by a queer comedian outside of Wanda Sykes, who was smart enough to come out after she yeah. made it. Um, and that's a problem. So it's speaking problem. Of, of identities, I mean, 
you know, you, you just said it, but comedians like to touch on that and do jokes. Uh, some of it is very offensive. Some of it is racist. Some of it's homophobic, and transphobic. Most of all, it's not funny. Uh, right. Um, but as a, as a successful comedian for yourself, I mean, I've always wanted to ask someone this question. I mean, what what is the line between offensive jokes or being racist or being stereotypical? I mean, how do you walk that tightrope and still maintain your your craft? Um, I think, first of all, having a heart, you know, and realizing that you don't need to be nasty to be funny. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, I've talked about, I mean, if you go back to a special that I did, as a matter of fact, Two years ago at the uh, San Francisco Punchline, I got up and, you know, I'm doing, you know, jokes just about dis detergent. And it's crazy because we all have thoughts about little things like that when we're in the house and um, just basic things that just make us laugh as human beings. When I'm creating, yeah. like, for instance, if I'm walking down a street, I walk down the street first as a human being. We all have that experience. Then I walk down the street as a black person and as a man and as a gay man. Those are four different points of views that I can come from. One of those four points of views has to connect us in some capacity. So I look at, I look at it that way. I've always looked at it as an inclusive thing. I think that laughter is so universal, you don't have a choice but to be inclusive. And if you're up there and you're talking about somebody's mama, and, well, I talk about Trump's mama, but, uh, <laughs> you know, if, if, if you're up there and you're talking about somebody's mama or a disability or how they love or what they look like, I think that that's just cruel. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm also now not in the business of telling people what they can and cannot talk about, mm-hmm. but I know as someone who creates humor, I make sure that I do my part, that if someone comes to my show, they leave out of that theater or that, you know, chicken shack or wherever I'm performing, because I perform everywhere. Um, I don't get too cute. If I can make you laugh and there's a microphone and a stool and an audience, I'm coming. Okay, (laughs) call me. Um, But I make sure that those people leave out of there feeling better than they did before they came in there. And I make sure that I send them out with love and with hope. Um, because I feel like if you're up there saying something, you should be saying something. And that's the way I've always felt. But as far as what other people do and say, I really don't try to control that. Again, just looking at it, I've always felt like, you know, if such and such, and for instance, I think Dave Chappelle is a genius. I think he's one of the greatest stand-up comedians of our generation. But I don't think that transphobia is funny. I don't think that making jokes about how you... Uh, had titty sex with a trans person is funny. Um, but, I mean, if they're paying him t- millions of dollars, $20 million in particular to do it, obviously somebody's going to go see it. But I feel like if we don't want to hear that, if we want to hear something otherwise, we have to come out and support queer comedians and comedians who are saying things and doing the type of humor mm-hmm. that we want to hear because that's the only way we call them the suits. Um, that's the only way they're going to give us a platform because they don't see any of that other stuff except green and butts and seats. Yeah. Have you ever had negative feedback and stuff, you know, where people did think you crossed the line? Absolutely not. People <laughs> love me. <laughs> no 80-year-old gran- no grandmother's yeah. Never. Actually, you want to know something? Yeah. Is uh, In this business, things are governed by agents and managers and access and things like that. And typically... 
people look at the label. So first of all, they see me as a black person. Mm -hmm. They automatically uh, associate with you, associate you with that smaller audience. Then you got the nerve mm-hmm. to be queer, mm-hmm. and they go, "Oh no." And and I've had people. I can show you emails. I can tell you stories about you know things that people have said to, to said to me, you know, and other queer comics about um, the lack of market ability, you know. And and at first I was taking that to heart, but there's a very stubborn part of me that I was just like, you know, I gave him the middle finger. Yeah. And because I go to places like Alabama, I go to places like Mississippi and Louisiana and Georgia and oh. Texas. Yeah. And I'm not talking about Houston and Atlanta either. I'm talking about West Ten Kip, Bubba Fuck, Mississippi, in the middle of nowhere, you know, where population is seven, you know. And I should point out, as a middle-aged white guy, I would be afraid to go to this town. Like okay, <laughs> okay. Shoot, so you're I would braver be than I am. Listen, and I go to these places. I was just in Jacksonville, Mississippi. I went yeah. uh, Jacksonville, Alabama, excuse me. Um, I was in Selma. I was in... Uh, Savannah, like I was in all these different parts of the South and I go there and these people come out and I assume they come out because they're expecting a freak show. You know, it's a gay black man. What is this? A circus? And, you know, they come out and they relate to it. Like I can see them looking and they're kind of stiff in their seats. But by the time I leave, knock on wood, I find some wood when I get up. Um, I've always gotten standing ovations from these people. (laughs) <laughs> Always. So I don't allow people to, t- to to place limitations on me because what I do, and again, I think humor is such a powerful thing uh, that I believe that it it uh, moves past different boundaries and it moves past labels. And I think it's one of the things that ultimately can unite us because you can give people truth and then you can give them a little chaser to go along with it. I love it. I love it. Oh, go ahead, John. I was just going to say, you work in different media, obviously, doing stand-up, you know, recording, um, and you write. Mm-hmm. Um, third book you're working on, is that right? I have a third book completed. I'm working on oh. my fourth book now. Well, can you tell I'm us about... i doing the work, baby. <laughs> well, and, and do you do it... Is there a different approach that you take to that? Do you still, you know, when you're writing something, are you thinking of that audience physically reading it, or do you, does, it, does it come from a different place and... and, and and are you trying to do something different in the writing than you are communicating when you're doing stand-up? I believe that I allow myself to just be honest. You know, I don't try to do what I feel like is going to make money. Mm-hmm. I don't do what I feel like is going to sell. Um, I'm honest. And I approach it as a human being with whatever experiences that I'm having at that moment. And I believe, this is just me, um, other than the fact that I'm just absolutely lovable, um, <laughs> I believe that uh, it's just that approach to creating whatever it is, just honesty, um, being very raw, bringing what it is that I can bring and Mm -hmm. stirring all that in the pot. I believe that's what's kept people loyal to me, and it's allowed me to reach people that generally I don't think a black gay person would be able to reach. Hmm. Um, And that's allowed me to remain hopeful. I mean, I did a show in uh, Traverse City, Michigan, and you can Google this story. The Ku Klux Klan came out to my show. They came out to my show, and I didn't even know they liked comedy. And I'm just playing, but, <laughs> <laughs> but well, I was going to ask, like, you know, they came out to your show. They came out to for protest. the show, or they came to... out to protest. Yeah, that would have been some hell if they'd have been. Oh, we love comedy. <laughs> um, no, they came out to protest. I did a show with Planned Parenthood, Uh-oh. and uh, and the Black Student Union at uh, 
Northwestern Michigan College, I believe, and they came out to the show. And there's a whole story. I mean, it could have been a bigger news story. I think it should have been. Um, and they came out. And I mean, because they, they came to the dressing room, you know, and they told me, you got pro- protesters. And I've had all kinds. I've had the church people. I've had all ki- types of anti-gay groups because I've worked with a lot of different organizations. Yeah. Um, so did you end up making them laugh? Or oh, they, yes. Yeah. Like, because they, you know, security came in. They're like, hey, you got uh, you got protesters. And I'm like, who? And they're like, the Klan. And, you know, I'm like, what, the Wu-Tang Klan? Like, you know, <laughs> what? And, uh, and they were like, no, the Ku Klux Klan. You still went on? I, I feel Absolutely. like I would. Yeah. I came there to do a job. Wow. And I believe that, uh, and again, I, I believe that what I do is so uh, divinely inspired that I believe that I am protected. I believe that what I do, I do in love, and love cannot be defeated. Thank you so much, Samson. And thank, thank you. you, Michelle, for allowing um, Spectrum Queer Media and myself to curate this month. It's been wonderful. And I look forward to doing this some more with you and with you, John. Thank you. So, Samson, I have watched you for a few years now, and um, humility is a large part of how you move through the world. I also know that for black gay comedians in particular, because a lot of um, humor is focused on depreciating who we are and how we are, um, have you found that it's more difficult for you to get the word out about your work? One thing that I'm really, really focused on is I would love to do late night. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I would love to get on Conan or something like that. And I actually, the only person who was going to let me on late night in 20 years was Arsenio Hall, who gave platforms to uh, many. My, I mean, he gave the first platform to RuPaul. Really? He was the very mm-hmm. first one to give the platform to RuPaul. Well, thank you, Samson, and thank you for your love. And you certainly are making it a better place for a lot of people, including the Klan. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Imagine that. Um, We'd be out thank, there. You, thank you to Spectrum <laughs> Career Media and Kin Folks for curating this entire month of Black History Month at the Commonwealth Club and the Michelle Miao Show. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Yes.